and welcome to another episode of the Midiera Meets podcast, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music world. This month I'm speaking to Andy Collins, who is a synth and electrical repairman and engineer based on the south coast of England. Andy's fixed a ridiculous amount of gear over the years. We do actually cover how many things he's fixed. He's worked for the Chemical Brothers, he's fixed stuff for Gary Newman, for Metronomy, even Midiera has been a customer of his now and again. Uh, he's a really, really cool guy. Uh, I caught up with him very, very recently on another hot summer's day to talk about his career, his influences, and the first question I asked him was about his musical beginnings. Dad was quite into music and he had a, a decent sort of home hi-fi turntable, sort of separate system. And from when he was young, he had a little box of CD, a box of singles, 45s, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I had a look through that once and um, I, without really knowing who any of them were, I just sort of uh, listened to them and made a pile. Did I like it? Did I not like it? And went through like that and mm-hmm. ended up with about 10 out of uh, 50 or 60 that I thought were amazing or, or really good. And it turned out like seven of those 10 were by the Beatles, which oh, <laughs> I didn't really know that much about at the time. I obviously liked something about their sound. And then there were... Um, yeah, things like uh, um, some rock and roll, Great Balls of Fire, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, things that really sort of stood out and still do really, mm-hmm. I think, you know, even obviously did for my dad as well at the time. But I think chart-wise, we'd always watch Top of the Pops and we'd, um, I'm talking about sort of, I start recollecting music about mid-70s really, so I can think of, you know, ABBA and things like that being in the charts and mm-hmm. I really like stuff like the 78, 79, the Jam and Blondie and um, Buzzcocks, that sort of thing when that came out. Um, but I remember, um, you know, some songs really stick in your mind. I Feel Love, for instance, first time I heard that. Mm-hmm. Donna Summer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We were on holiday as a family and uh, I suppose I, I was... Um, about seven or something and it came on in the car and uh, me and my dad and my brother we just stayed in the car we got to the destination mum got out <laughs> bless her, and shut the door and we were just mesmerised by this sound that we'd never heard before and uh, we couldn't get out until it had finished and then we were all saying what on earth was that you know it just didn't hear any uh, guitars or anything recognisable in it at all so, exactly yeah. yeah it's Giorgio Moroder that's that it right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is an incredible track. I think even now it feels like it's a it's a modern track. It still mm. hasn't hasn't lost anything in the, all the time. No, it's incredible it's how released. quickly you got that sort of sound out of some well sequencer and some basic oscillators. Yeah, I mean we strive nowadays as well. I'd say we like producers strive for like more gear and more things to expand what they do. That's true. But that's mm. such a simple setup he must have had there for that. Mm. You know, maybe even a what is it, sixteen-step sequence that's yeah. running the whole way through that track. Yeah. Apparently, only bit that wasn't electronic was the kick drum. He got a drummer to do that with a, with a uh, sort of pedal and oh, a drum, nice. but other, everything else was electronic. So. Brilliant. And it was a great song, of course, and beautifully sung, so it really took the world by storm, I think, and I remember that. And, and the next one to do that was 
probably um, what's his name? John Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, another one that came out with some some I think underpass or something like that that was uh, very synth based. Other people were doing it, but they hadn't. Right. I hadn't really got my attention. And shortly after John Fox calls was Gary Newman with um, our friends Electric again. That was another song that sounded just like from another planet. Yeah, and he, um, yeah, ab- absolutely amazing. What sort of John Fox stuff were you listening to? Because I have to be honest and say I don't know probably any of his music um, unless I know it by the sound of it. Maybe, I think he was uh, a bit like Gary Newman, but not quite as alien as, as, as Gary Newman managed to make it sound. But uh, mm-hmm. I think the song I'm thinking of is called Underpass. And uh, I think people like Kraftwerk and stuff had done it before but nobody really knew them and I think Kraftwerk songs like The Model which later came out were mm-hmm. re-released from they were made in the 70s and not re-released until in, in the 80s once uh, sort of uh, synth music had become more popular so they'd done it first but the world wasn't ready yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just try it again yeah. <laughs> 10 years later and then everyone yeah. goes mad for it exactly yeah yeah, oh, that was a great track, The Model. It, it, I have that on 7-inch, and it's one of, probably the, one of the first records I bought as, like, a teen going in charity shops looking for records. Yeah, yeah. It's got such a vintage mm. sound to it. It's incredible. Yeah, and, and Gary Newman stuff. Um, I spoke to Aid Fenton a few months ago. I interviewed Aid Fenton, mm. who, who, yeah, said a similar thing about being inspired by Gary Newman and his record collection. Oh, really? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then suddenly he became the producer for Gary Newman, which that's pretty good isn't yeah, it yeah <laughs> I think I'll do that progression <laughs> yeah that's great so yeah it seems like electronic music had a bit of a like took you yeah and I think even before electronic music but the the sound you know like the Beatles sound I think that sort of the opening riff to Day Trip and things like that when you're not into music at all at a young age mm-hmm. and you don't know what's made that sound that also they used to get written off as being electronic noise even in those days yeah, you know, how they yeah. made songs like help you know with, um, in in one evening and to make it sound as polished and weird as it as it does mm-hmm. you can break it down now and hear what's in it but it's still amazing that they managed to make it sound like it sounds it's very sort of upfront and exciting isn't it yeah um, compared with everybody else really and so that inspired me to play guitar, which I started to play when I was 10 and um, still do. And then we had a piano at home. Um, I was sort of self-taught on the piano, just to, just to play that. And mm-hmm. I made myself a drum kit because we couldn't really... Oh, cool. <laughs> it wasn't very practical to buy one. We didn't have any space. So they said you can put it up in the loft, which wasn't very easy either because mm-hmm. it wasn't boarded out really. But my dad worked in... Uh, uh, place called Edwards High Vacuum and they make uh, components for vacuum industry um, you know where processes where you have to evacuate the air out of chambers and things like that mm-hmm. and they made products which used to be silk screened and uh, the screens the silk screens were frames with silk stretched across them and mm-hmm. once I saw one of those and pinged it and realised it sounded quite looked like a drum yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. he used to get any unused ones for me and uh, I ended up sort of building a, a frame and supporting these silk screens in different places. Nice. I made a, a kick drum out of Meccano and put some foil in the bottom <laughs> of one of them to make a, a, a snare drum and uh, 
some various sort of uh, biscuit tin lids and things for cymbals, and I, I turned a pair of drumsticks with a lathe at school. Did you <laughs> so, really? Yeah. You even made the drumsticks? Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. I don't, I don't know why we didn't think about buying things, but we just didn't in those days. I think things were expensive for a start. But yeah. We you know, weren't particularly poor or anything. We just didn't think of spending what, the equivalent of, you know, six weeks pocket money on some drums. Exactly, yeah. yeah. A lot of pocket money mm. that you could... It's, yeah, I mean, if if your dad can get you... A few snare drums and toms and a yeah, bass drum. Yeah, like so that then worked enough for me to sort of learn to coordinate some drumming skills anyway. Nice, and I love that you made a kick drum out of Meccano yeah. as well. I grew up with Meccano too. <laughs> you, and yeah. I've made a load of rubbish with it, but it was such a great tool, wasn't it? For, yeah. For the imagination, mm. you could use it as something that would, uh, you know, like help you out in your life if there's some sort of structure you needed to do something you could use Meccano yeah. to make it that's cool that's really good so I guess um, you developed your own collection of music having having explored that yeah um, I, I sort of um, really sort of went crazy for the, the well Elvis first actually even though he was not my generation I still love to listen to those early rock and roll songs that they're just the ones with the energy at that time mm-hmm. and there was a bit of a resurgence in uh, um, sort of rock and roll style at the late 70s you know with things like Grease and Shawaddy Waddy all sort of the do what era for the 50s came back mm-hmm. and uh, and so that was uh, not unusual to be into that sort of thing at that age but yeah, yeah and that yeah. sort of developed into the in the Beatles same time my brother he would buy we agreed not to duplicate records because it's quite hard to <laughs> save up to get them you know an album was you get 50p a week and an album was 6.99 or something so it wasn't mm-hmm. uh, something you took lightly and yeah you didn't get to hear it really you had to sort of trust luck that it was going to be good you heard the singles on the radio and then uh, you'd hope for the best with the album so you have to yeah i knew I could buy all the Beatles back catalogue and I wouldn't be disappointed so I sort of worked on that really and mm-hmm. the, the brother bought everything else um, you know, sort of Led Zeppelin stuff and Pink Floyd and the, the usual stuff of the era that uh, we would listen to between us then <laughs> Yeah, it's great that you coordinated that Yeah, Great, and so when did you get your first synth? What was your first synth? Do you remember playing with um, one or where you first saw it? Um I think it was, I've still got it actually, it was Sequential Circuits um, Multitrack, which was one of the ones that they made when they were just trying to sort of jump on the bandwagon. Well, they came out with those um, sort of single oscillator chips on us, synths on one chip, you know, oh, for right. the computer market really, so that mm-hmm. you could get all the sounds for the games and, and things like that. They oh. were all, uh, uh, I think they were involved in development of those. Uh, sequential circuits so they um, they started to make some cheap synths using those so single oscillator per voice sort of thing and then you could get four or five and, and to get a polyphonic nice. single oscillator synth mm-hmm. it had a sequencer as well on it which was great at the time because uh, um, you just had to record everything at that time but then you could then you could make a um, you know a riff or a chord and uh, start to build up some backing and then stripe a, a tape with a sympathy code which was a, like a FSK a frequency shift keying code which would go on to the one of the spare tracks of the four track and that would drive a sequencer through right. MIDI 
and nice. it would all stay in time. You could then link a drum machine to that, and so you could you do live mix, and the drum machine would would be live, and so with the sequencer and the keyboard and you could free up the audio tracks for just things that you couldn't put in MIDI form so you could get much better recordings quickly. That's amazing. Yeah, what's, the, what's the format called for the tape? Um, F- FSK is... FSK, I've never heard of it. S-M-P-T-E, I think it was. Oh, is it? Oh, okay, yeah. right. So you're recording like audio... You're recording what, what sounds like there? a... Yeah. Well, it's it's just a, a timekeeping track. It's two different... Well, I think it's just one frequency or square wave or something, and as mm-hmm. it uh, as it crosses the zero point, it recognises a new time, and then it sticks to that. Nice. So it's just basically a sync pulse from audio and then back in mm-hmm. to the uh, to the machine. Right, yeah. I liked it, but then if you wanted to play a three note chord, you'd, you'd lost three of your six <laughs> uh, tracks on the sequence. Oh, really? <laughs> Oh, so no. basically you could have a three note chord going through and then uh, another three notes to do some melodies and harmonies mm-hmm. that was usually enough for a keyboard it's almost like backing. the limitations of chiptune isn't it you know making chiptunes on like the Amiga or the Atari ST you oh, had yeah. four channels of sound one of which is just a noise channel mm. and then three of them I mean you've got to get drums and synths out of three tracker tracks yeah. so it was a real you had to be really resourceful the way that you made music, and it sounds similar, similar in that in that regard as well. Yeah, well, at the time, you think it's a lot better than what it was. So you don't realise you're being restricted. You think it's all opened out now. It's all a lot better. It just keep, as it keeps getting better. Yeah, so you used to just have a little setup in the bedroom, really, and write songs at the time. I was always interested in writing songs, and never found it a problem. Really, some people don't. Mm-hmm. seemed to be able to do it but it was just something that I did without thinking and initially I right. recorded them on a reel to reel using sound on sound you know where you don't erase the last track mm-hmm. you just record again and that way you can uh, build sort of multi-track without any mixing you just have to keep putting things onto the tape and the, yeah so I used to do that and and then um, you'd mix it down to a cassette and then when it got a bit Better. I, I managed to buy a four-track, a Fostex four-track uh, cassette, which was pretty good. Still got that nice. as well. And I say with that, once you start getting MIDI and sequences, you could then use one of the tracks to synchronise all that lot. So that was how I used to record in those days. Nice. And do you still have those recordings? Yes. No. Right. I'd like to <laughs> dig them all out and. Uh, Get get them all together one day, get them digitised and listen to them. Yeah, I th- I find that it's amazing going back th- through your own tracks, listening back to the stuff you made because there's mm. so many memories in mm. inherent in each of those recordings. There's there's times and space and people. Yeah. Inside all of them, and they may be like terrible tracks to to mm. anyone else, but yeah. to you, they like they really mean something and they represent. Yeah, it's a, true. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of them you don't even remember doing because it's been so long. You listen to it and you think, "Is this even me?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it comes back to you later, but initially. Yeah, oh, it's just one of those ones that you. Uh, yeah, I certainly have that with a few of my tracks. Like, wow, did I did I really make that? Mm. Or like the production's amazing compared to where you are now, and you're like, wow, how did I how did I make that? <laughs> yeah, sound? that was great. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I had a book written by uh, John Peel, I suppose it was the same John Peel, um, the DJ, about uh, how to record using a four-track. Right. Um, it had some really 
good basics about keeping noise down and getting the best out of uh, guitars and vocals. And yeah, I wonder what that book was. That yeah, I think it's something like um, recording with four track by John Peel or something. I've still mm -hmm. got that somewhere as well. Great. Yeah, so That's I learned cool. a lot from that. I think. How did you go from like playing with them into the world of fixing fixing them and yeah um I think I always had an interest in it, how things worked and my turntable and things like that I would often take apart just to see what was going on or if something went wrong with it I'd try and repair it and I say my dad was an engineer um and he was always happy to let me do that. He let me get electrocuted on the floor once <laughs> while I was pulling something apart. <laughs> he obviously wasn't paying too much attention, but uh, that was all right. I learned yeah. about uh, touching mains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you learned that good lesson. lesson learned, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could well have been a good lesson for him to allow you to learn. You <laughs> yeah. Know, whether he did it, but it was that. Like I wouldn't have thought you'd have done it on purpose because it could have been <laughs> pretty bad. Fatal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And that's no, why we don't touch yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. You're, now you're dead. See? <laughs> what have you learned? <laughs> yeah, a bit of a harsh lesson. That's good. That's but no, he, he knew a lot of things, so I, I could often ask him about how things worked and uh, satisfied my own uh, sort of desire for the knowledge. And, but then um, I think as I finished school, I went to college and did a... what course that doesn't exist anymore I don't think ordinary national diploma in engineering which covered sort of all aspects of engineering um, electrical electronic mechanical and uh, civil and things like that and mm -hmm. that was a, a two-year full-time course that was quite a good grounding and that was equivalent of like four A levels I think so I could get into university with that Great. which um, I went to Brighton, what was then the Polytechnic, which is now University, Brighton University, but Brighton Polytechnic, because it's mainly technical college stuff then, or, you know, technical, I think the Polytechnic covered only technical subjects, so, mm -hmm. um, nice. and that, again, I did a course which doesn't exist anymore, which was um, a degree in electrical and electronic engineering, but it was what they called an honours sandwich course, which meant that it was cut down your normal three-year course was condensed into two years and then you added three six-month work placements. So I don't know if they still do probably that side of it, I don't know, but yeah. they don't do a technical course like that anymore, apparently. Um, That's really good. I think a sandwich course, as I know it, is um, yeah, two years either side of a year placement, like in one particular place. Right. But I think that's really cool that you had three separate placements all six months in yes. different places. Yeah. That's a much better insight into the industry, isn't it? That's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, and it's, really it was very gruelling, actually. I can't say I enjoyed it much because <laughs> really? it was like a 40-hour-a-week course learning uh, with lectures, and then instead of a summer holiday you get six months working and then you go back to do it again for four years yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i was totally worn out by the end of it but uh, i did manage to pick up a lot of 
knowledge at that time, I think, which is probably the basis for what I do now, mm-hmm. even though they didn't really touch on music and stuff like that. It, a lot of the sort of generic um, electronics came up during the course, and as long as you try to understand most of it, it stuck with you, really. Good. And do you, do you remember any particular projects that you did? Um, what did I do? Actually, I, I know something I wanted to do, which was a, an automatic guitar tuner with motors and things that actually sat on the top of the on the machine heads Mm -hmm. and would then uh, sort of ping a string and then um, adjust the the string till it reached pitch yeah yeah but um when i put it forward they said oh we don't allow guitar tuners but i think that was just I didn't bother to explain how it was going to be different from a guitar tuner i just said oh okay which Mm -hmm. is a shame i ended up making a um um it was a computer-controlled system for um, pumping down vacuum chambers. <laughs> you know, right. you, better, you have to switch in various pumps at different times because you can't use one pump to completely evacuate the chamber. Mm-hmm. So you'd start off with a roughing pump, and then you'd change to what they call a, a diff pump, and you'd have different pressure gauges which would... Uh, switch in at certain times and some of them can measure some pressures and some can measure other pressures so it had right. to be automated and uh, ended up building this um had a little microcontroller 80 80 32 or something like that as i recall but mm-hmm. yes but i didn't actually finish it because it was have a lot of work and I, I i was halfway through coding it i think when we ran out of time but um, i see yeah i still ended up okay I've got the two the two one in the end but, uh, and the placements I worked at um, a place called Anglican Instruments in New Haven which made temperature controllers for industrial temperature controlling situations I worked in the right. test department there and then nice. the second place it was a place called computing devices which again I'm not sure they exist they seemed they were uh, a pretty good company they had lots of like sun workstations that were worth thousands at a time, you know, probably very basic now, but uh, mm-hmm. decent uh, CAD things. Um, and they they did military contracts. So um, there they got me, uh, I designed the test pattern generator for the radar on the Nimrod aircraft. Wow. So, that's <laughs> that quite, so when you... Uh, Obviously, they didn't trust me with any of the, <laughs> the military stuff, but if you yeah. press a button, and then it came up with a test pattern and their little logo. And um, that, you didn't have scanners in those days, so to get the logo onto a screen was quite a job. I, mm-hmm. I ended up copying it off a piece of headed paper onto a large piece of graph paper, as I recall, and then yeah, yeah. each of the graph the squares on the graph became a pixel, and then I would go through each um, pixel and write down a binary code for whether it, for the grayscale of the pixel. Right, you know? oh, <laughs> so for the grading of the Yeah, the for the colour. Wow. So if it was white, <laughs> it would be whatever it was, and mm-hmm. ones or the other way around, and the, uh, yeah, binary or hex or something. So I just worked my way all the way through till I came up with the binary code to describe what I was seeing on the Excellent. page. Yes, that's how Which is like a scan... It's like scanning something, but with the humans doing yeah. what the scanner would do. Yeah, yeah it's amazing how you had to do things like that in those days. And that got written into a, an EEPROM or something like that, and it would be read out and appear at the top of the screen. 
Yeah. Along with the, the test pattern, which was basically sort of video things to so you could see the screen was working properly. But That's cool. Again, I think I left before I finished it, so I bet someone had to sort out the, the mess that I'd <laughs> started. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go, oh no, that's the wrong way around. Yeah. <laughs> got all the, all the, all the colours inverted or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. It's really interesting that you wanted to do a guitar tuning thing, like a musical yes, engineering Yes, I was very much into thing. music when I was at university and I did a lot of recording at home. And... Uh, um, constant playing and bands and things like that and writing mm. but when I left uni um, I was going to I was earmarked for a job in computing devices so I worked there for two of the three placements and um, I think they got into difficulties because there, there was a recession at the time and they didn't take me on so there wasn't any work and uh, I wrote to a few places but didn't get much response so um, I joined a band <laughs> which was, which was uh, something to do and then I also approached Bonner's music store in Eastbourne mm -hmm. with, they were a local music shop and um, asked them if I could come in and repair some customers equipment you know once right. a week or whatever and nice. uh, they said yes to that and and that sort of worked all right and where I started getting used to uh, the equipment taking it apart and fault finding and and I also used to do it in my spare time as well. I rented a, um, I rented a little space in a workshop in Helsham where I would also try and get my own customers doing that as well. And, and I stayed with Bonners for, I don't know, about eight years really going down there and until it became obvious that it was better for me then just to sort of pass it all directly to me and I set myself up. And, Definitely, yeah. And um, which is how that started. But it was... You know, twenty nineteen ninety two. That was so. When I started this business, anyway, and was it? That's yeah. one of my questions. Yeah. When, when did it all start? Nineteen ninety two. That Bonner store still there, isn't it? Yeah, it's Am very big. They've done very well. Yeah, yeah. Tony and Mike. They, they, um, it wasn't them owning it at the time, but they um, they've really uh, expanded it and kept up to date. They've got a big online presence. And mm -hmm. it's very good. That's incredible. So nineteen ninety two is when you. You sort of got off the yeah. ground on your on your own. Antec was supposed to be Andy Technology, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I only realised that. Like, in good the last time, few but days. it sounds a bit dated now. But, and it doesn't, no, it sounds good. No, doesn't it sounds really good describe good. what I do. But then I, it was systems as well because I used to build. Um, I didn't just confine myself to music equipment at the time. I wasn't sure that was a job mm -hmm. at the time on its own. But um, so I used to do other uh, industrial things with some background there, you know, building what they call bake-out controllers and things like that, which would uh, um, control baking of uh, industrial chambers and things like that. Um, oh. I also worked for a company um, called um, Beauty Works, who made muscle toners, you know, where you put the pads on and yeah, flex really. your muscles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I used to uh, uh, sort of a contract repairing those by the thousands. They sold them all over the world and they suddenly 10 boxes would turn up and I had to go through and fault find them and mm. resolder them and change chips or whatever was wrong with them and repackage them and send them out again. I see. Uh, so I did that for quite a while. And by that time you were used to the electric shocks because you had that early one in your career. <laughs> yeah. So, and it was a much smaller shock, I guess. Yeah, this one was not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those things, yeah. I think at some point I tried one. It's a really strange sensation, isn't it? 
your yeah, muscle like just tenses. triggers the muscle to tense on its own yeah. so it so i suppose it worked <laughs> yeah yeah you could have it just all day couldn't you just tense in your stomach muscles or something like that yeah perhaps i should buy one yeah. <laughs> i don't know if they can i'm not sure but obviously the music was what I preferred to do, the music-related stuff, because it was more interesting to me, so that sort of grew, really. Um, but the, I was going to say, the band I joined, the um, the other guitarist stroke singer was good friends and sort of driver for uh, Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant, who lived around here at that time. Oh, right. And uh, so I met him through that and spent a lot of time with him just... The three of us would sort of spend nearly every day together for about a year and a half or something like that because I'd finished uni and mm-hmm. uh, we just pot about in Peter Grant's Range Rover and he'd tell us all Led Zeppelin stories and Great. Uh, <laughs> it's really good like that and uh, go and help him sort of sort out all his old um, when he moved to sort out his barn of all this old Zeppelin gear and hi fi and reel to reel tapes and stuff. And, uh, wow, that's he, incredible. Yeah, it was really really good because I wasn't really intimidated by him because of my age I suppose but it was quite looking back at it it was quite unusual he loved my guitar playing and he used Mm -hmm. to come and pick me up and he'd just sort of ring up and say grab your guitar I'll be around in five minutes and he'd come around and yeah take me to some sort of gig and get me to go up and play and that's sort of he's like his little prodigy for a while that's brilliant he man. had me jamming with jason bonham and things like that wow <laughs> which is quite good yeah that's awesome and he'd support it was a covers band but he'd he'd help out you know advising us and paid for some uh, press uh, photo shoots and things like that oh that's really cool yeah that's amazing do you do, where does he step where where is he now peter grant Which, well he died i oh, did he? um yeah, about ninety nine or something like that. I oh, think right. it was a sh- well, it was obviously a shame because he wasn't that old, but um, he did have heart problems, and um, he was interested in me doing my own music, and I uh, played some of it to him, and he liked it, and he actually it was quite a bad story because he said come round and play me some of your stuff come round to the house and mm-hmm. in the Monday afternoon or whatever it was so uh, I I started panicking a bit and then I went back and started sort of remixing and situating things that I'd already finished Last really yeah thinking oh yeah. he's not like that he's not like that. maybe I should do this and I started and then it was it was about half past two or something and I still haven't gone and mm-hmm. he rang up and my mum answered and he goes put me on to Andrew and, like that. and he goes I'm not sitting here like a cunt waiting for you he's going this is this is business now this is not friendship I said you're going to be here at two o'clock if you're not here forget it and slam the phone down like real Peter Grant type really? wow. style. <laughs> so, so you got the full treatment. I didn't know that we said two o'clock. That wasn't in my head. But anyway, right. um, I didn't get a chance to say anything. So uh, we rearranged it and I played it to him. And he said, yeah, give me like three songs that you think are the best. And I'll give them to a publisher, a friend of mine. That's brilliant. Which I didn't do for some reason. Right. I mean, I was really determined to make it in the music business, and that was a fabulous opportunity, but I just yeah. never felt confident enough to hand over the songs t- to him. So that was some psychological weird thing that stopped me doing that. Yeah, I mean, I guess because he's been working with Led Zeppelin, 
that that you know that's huge, isn't it? That's that, yeah. That says a no, lot about didn't... your guitar playing and that your and your talents and you know your persona that he saw something in you that. Well, that, thank that you. Maybe yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, um, I formed a band, another band, doing just my songs, which um, we gave him demos for that and. The week I gave it to him was the week he died, so we never actually heard what he thought about that. No way! Show, but, uh, wow. Um, but he yeah. also introduced me to Denny Lane, you know, who was in Rings Wings Bell. with Paul McCartney, and he was in Moody Blues before that. <coughs> so um, he was a big. I was a big fan of his, being a, a Beatles fan, and he was in. Um, he did a lot of stuff with McCartney. Wow. And his, his Grant's daughter daughter had a baby with Denny Lane so um, I hung about with him for a while and he had a place in Windsor so we went up there and I remember he had one of the first Yamaha what they call SY10s or something it was a vector synth oh, it was yeah. really nice at the time and I remember yeah, taking yeah, up my yeah. little Akai 612 sampler and asking mm-hmm. him if I could sample his Yamaha and I remember him thinking what <laughs> who is this guy but uh, he let me sample the pianos off it and things like that that's great yeah and well like the, the keyboard range like the, the octave range of uh, it's just a nice piano sound it was quite a hard thing to get at that time so uh, mm-hmm. I took my little rack mount sampler which had a disc drive and it was an 8-bit sampler and I uh, sampled yeah, sort of a few ranges, a middle C and a top and a bottom, and, and uh, but it used to stretch the note either way, so it started yeah. to sound a bit odd once you'd moved away from the original sample, but that was good enough for me anyway, I was quite happy with that. That's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> and then I sort of temporarily formed a little band with Denny Lane, he he, um, he did a few gigs and playing some wing songs and some of his songs as well, which I was really pleased to do. Was a big fan of his and chatting to him about wings and uh, being McCartney and stuff like that. So mm. And w- was that you on guitars? Yeah. Nice. Oh, good. And because uh, Pete Grant was behind it when he, we did some gigs and he'd get everybody down, you know, like Dire Straits manager at the time, Ed Vic Norris, I think he was. And, that guy's cool. Yeah, <laughs> Gary Glitter and people like that there, you know. So. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> It's incredible, really. I mean, yeah. what an insight into that that whole world. Like, that's uh, yeah, yeah, it was quite fortuitous. But, um, he lived around here, and a lot of the Led Zeppelin stories are in this area. You know, he um, Peter Grant had a, a big uh, house up in the Hellinglie, mm-hmm. which was where a lot of the you know parties and things, and, and apparently they signed. To Swan Song Records in the Bowship Farm Hotel just down the road there. Right. <clears throat> and Denny Lane said Wings used to rehearse in the Hippodrome Theatre in Eastbourne. So mm-hmm. there's all these <clears throat> amazing stories in this area, which seems like there's nothing happening. Yeah, it does. I mean, particularly <clears throat> in Eastbourne. But but yeah, I think you're right. In Eastbourne, um, Pink Floyd would play the Winter Gardens, and really, a lot they? of the big bands, yeah, would do like seaside tours. Yeah, I know so, who played the Winter Gardens as well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's got heritage, a lot of heritage, I think. I I love to think of like the old 
promotional methods like you mentioned Peter doing to like get people in to come and watch they've changed so much now for like you know promotion of your music and the ways to get people to to listen um, uh, but but again it's sort of a little bit like your company it seems like you haven't had to really advertise what you do at all or push it it's all been like word of mouth I so yeah From, yeah Not a great deal yeah even now I've got an online presence but you know you can't always guarantee it but I've always got more work than I can handle so I almost keep a low profile really because it, mm-hmm. um, there are times you know I've counted out like a hundred items waiting to be repaired and the phone ringing saying have you done it yet all the time and that's not really the way you want to work either you know you don't want it too successful unless you know you start trying to find other engineers that can do the work to the same standard but it becomes more complicated then I think yeah definitely definitely no I mean I heard about you through um, Paul at Luke Masters who who has a lot of uh, stuff uh, fixed by you and he always spoke really highly of you and was like he's the best guy in the business Mm. And um, yeah, and uh, yeah, you fixed things for a, a huge number of artists, and the, even my friend's gear is here today. I've seen something oh, yeah. that, that's owned by one of my friends, which is yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few of us. There are some other great people that do it in in the country, but there's not many now because I think you need such a a large amount of knowledge that you you're better off doing something else with that knowledge, you know. I could have probably gone like my uh, friend did from uni. You know, he went to work for Ericsson, and, and by the time he was my age, he had a pretty good uh, uh, business and a lot, mm. of, you know, not business, but a good salary. So, I think in that, in terms of making lots of money, it's not really the right business, but it's something I enjoy. Yeah, and I think that's what's important, isn't it? Like th- that you enjoy it and you're that you're passionate about it and. Mm. Yeah, you're connected to it, and you. Ca- I think yeah, like you care about the instruments that people bring in. Yeah, and there's some gratification in getting something working, and you feel like you've achieved something. It feels a little glow inside until it fails again. But no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's usually uh, that's the reward really, rather than the money. Obviously, you need money to survive, but. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good skill. I mean, we talked a little bit. Um, on the way here about like the dying art of fixing things that people mm. don't really fix things nowadays and um, yeah it requires a lot of perseverance a lot of determination mm. um, you've got to sort of overcome a lot of obstacles to get to a position where you can fix things mm. so yeah how, how have you developed those skills how have you developed those skills over the years um, yeah it's mostly just uh, keep doing it really and uh, try to learn from each job but um, I think you have to have a, a an idea of what's going on when you open something up so that even before you start touching anything you know pretty much what, what you're going to be looking for and what area it sounds like the problem is in mm-hmm. and uh, especially it's a lot easier now with the internet you can pull schematics up easily in the old days you used to write a letter to somebody <laughs> and wait for it to come back in the post you know? <laughs> and, but now nearly everything is available online and that makes it a whole lot easier to, uh, to fold find Definitely. Uh, and a lot of the electronics that are used are generic so you see the same things in lots of different circuits um, and you can still buy a lot of the 
you know, what the logic ICs and things like that are still available, and they were very prolific in the 80s and 90s. And mm-hmm. I think they're getting absorbed into bigger chips now, so it's getting harder to it's probably getting harder to fault find. It's it's fine if you can get a new board and and replace it. Mm-hmm. That that's okay, but that only works for 10 years or so until it stops being supported. And so there's a, a sort of period now, I think, where it's getting quite difficult, probably from, you know, late 90s, somewhere around there, if you've got a, a digital system that's that's not working in some way, it can be quite hard to, to fault find. And if you do fault find it, it's probably some large-scale integrated chip that you can't really... Uh, replace mm-hmm. very easily if you can find it and it might have some sort of factory programming in it as well which you'll never get to know what that was or be able to do it again so there are things now which uh, I think are, will, will be difficult in the future are you I mean when you're saying uh, 90s stuff you're talking like synths like yeah anything like, that was high tech at that time mm-hmm. I mean a lot of it you you can repair because it, it was very reliable and, and still is and a lot of the peripheries you you might you know if there's if there's the process is not doing anything at all and then you check things like the reset circuit that might not be working or the oscillator um, crystal oscillator or whatever it might be mm-hmm. which uh, may not be functioning things like that or physical damage to the board you can look for things like that and so there's, there's still quite a lot you can do to fix things, but there are times when, the, depending on what it's worth, it's not it's not worth doing. It's just, mm-hmm. I suppose everything's more or less fixable in, in the end if you want to spend a lot of time on it. But you come back yeah. to the customer and say, I, I spent you know, 125 hours deciding it was this. <laughs> yeah, deciding <laughs> that you actually should just buy a new one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I only pay 50 quid for it. But, yeah, that is the trade-off sometimes yeah. for people. It's like, oh god, I really want it. Like, um, yeah, like, it, yeah, the trade-off of of uh, the cost of repairing it outweighing the uh, the cost of the actual use. Yes, yeah, quite often I have to just uh, bite the bullet and decide well, I want to get this working. You know, for the relationship with the customer and and the fact that it needs to be working, this piece of equipment should be working, and the, yeah. I'll stick at it and, until it is, and then just charge what the customer's probably expecting to pay and uh, absorb the rest. That does happen sometimes, but yeah, it must be nice to like get new strings to your bow as well to like pick something up and go. Oh, I've never done that sort of thing, but yeah, it must be nice um, to discover true. new things. So in terms of like rare synths what sort of or, or any piece of gear what sort of stuff have you worked on that's like um, you don't see yeah well, I've done some um, I did an Ons Martinon have you heard of those yeah. French French thing designed in the yeah. 20s yeah sort of uh, valve synth really and there's a um, a nice chap called Francoise Evans who owns the one that used to be used by the um, the guy who did the music for Thunderbirds and all those. Mm, Jerry Anderson? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, Jerry Anderson produced it, yeah, didn't he? Produced it, the guy who did, yeah, the did the music. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. He, the original Ons Martin, which made all those sort of theremin type sounds that on all those mm-hmm. old, uh, TV programmes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I worked on that, that one, that was pretty interesting. And it comes with all these sort of uh, 
speakers and gongs and stuff like that that all attach to it and make these weird noises that you can mic up, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite a good thing. Yeah, there's a very prolific um, uh, player of that instrument. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I will get it wrong. But yeah, there's a guy who who is like the guy who plays um, that, yeah, at the moment. I Um, think Johnny Greenwood's got one as well, hasn't he? Has he? I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I mean... Like things like the GX20. Have you ever heard of the GX20, the Yamaha GX20? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've like seen one there. ABBA had one, didn't they? Yeah, I think yeah. ABBA had one. Apex Twin supposedly has right. one. And um, yeah, I think there's like 15 or something of them mm. in the world, and they're worth. They're, I think they're worth 20 grand about 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, so they've shot up, worth, haven't they? I think all, all, well, a lot of old rare since. You know, I saw 12 and a half grand for a Jupiter 8 the other day. and Yeah, wow, well, really? I repaired it. Um, a couple of CS80s, the Yamaha, oh, um, nice. late seventies polyphonic, one of the first polyphonic synths. They're amazing. Yeah, it's the Vangelis one. Yeah, that's it? right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, they, I mean, they're fetching massive money now as well. But then it's because it's really hard to to find one that works and find someone that can repair it. There are there are people, but uh, mm. I think that's where you have to pay for the skill, and then you. It becomes worth more because it's like a classic car, isn't it? You know, they, they're shooting up as well because you need. If the time you've restored it, you've spent uh, three hundred thousand years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you've got to look really look after it. I think that was one thing I'd like to ask you. Really, is like for advice for people who do own synths and they do own like vintage gear. Is there anything you could say that? Um, uh, any advice for like looking after them or keeping them or storing them, for example? Hmm. Um, well, batteries are the are the worst things, aren't they? So the, uh, some synths really suffer from leaking the batteries yeah. to store the internal memories. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they can totally ruin things like a, a core Poly Six. Although um, there are uh, people like um, Andy, the synth professor, who's who's made a clone one. Um, mm-hmm. So he's uh, helped us out there, but uh, there are there are cases where it just totally the the electrolyte comes out the battery and migrates through everything through wires up tracks and it can make its way across boards and and just destroying everything on its way. <laughs> yeah, it's like and, a warpath, isn't it? Yeah. I've seen it on like VL tones or you right. know SK ones, and yeah. it's just like. Damn it! So it's, it's, it's like a virus. If you've had one in the loft for twenty-five years, it's probably best to take the battery out and risk losing your presets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fine. Risk losing the presets yeah. rather than the or actual. At least synth. get it changed. Yeah, definitely. I think rust is a bit the first thing that I, I check if I'm buying if I'm buying a piece of gear in the battery compartment. If there's rust in there, it's yeah, straight away. Looks on. like rust. Yeah. Um, Got to be careful with them. Keep it out of dust because dust and dirt gets inside all the potentiometers. And if it's an analog synth with like twenty, you know, potentiometers, one for each control, more or less, isn't it? And uh, that they can cause uh, problems. And some of the, the potentiometers you can't really find now. If you want exactly the same one that fits in the same footprint as the circuit board, mm-hmm. again, there's way around it. And but um, if they get destroyed, it can be flushed out and cleaned very often but uh, same as key contacts they yeah. get dust and dirt gets under those again it can be clean but if you can not let it get dusty in the first place that would help mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I did. I was. I left the DX. I've got a DX7 at my parents' house that I left in the attic. And yeah. I said to someone I was stuck in the attic. They're like, "Oh, don't leave it in your attic. No, it's a bit damp. You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't leave it there. Just put it in a normal room." Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. It's not maybe. Shouldn't be damp in the attic, should it? No, I don't know. Like, it might. It's not. I wouldn't. <laughs> you get extreme temperature changes, don't you? But I guess that may not be too bad. But again, dust is is bad in attics a lot of the time, depending on what the, what the attic's like. But mm-hmm. if it's all the tile cement drops off and goes in, and that's true. Cobwebs as well. I think there was a ton of cobwebs in that DX when I opened it when I first got it. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, yeah, that's the one. Well, to look talking out of more. bad. Things like that. The, those, um, did you hear about those ones I repaired for Gary Newman? The, the, he moved to LA recently, didn't he? From mm-hmm. again, he lived locally, and uh, he had an outbuilding with a, and in the roof, uh, when he cleared it out, he found some old synths that he'd forgotten about and had been there for, you know, thirty, forty years, nice, including wow. a mini Moog and an Oberheim, OVXA, mm-hmm. and uh, he invited me around to his house to see if I could do anything with them and and uh, they were in such a state you know they uh, I've got pictures on my uh, Facebook website of have it. you right yeah, oh brilliant uh, I'll link to them um yeah like birds nests inside them and holly <laughs> growing through it and <laughs> just, <laughs> it was uh, filthy dirty and uh, uh, you know it was, uh, something had been rubbing on the wood for for ages and mm-hmm. uh, so I thought you know it might be uh, retrievable, but I had a go. He said, "Don't." He wasn't that bothered about it. He said, "Don't spend too much time on it. See if you can get it going, and uh, mm-hmm. don't spend too much money on it." And so, um, but I had them a while and managed to get them looking really good and, oh, and nice. working in the oh, end. Well and, yeah, and a Fenton ended up with them. I think you mentioned him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they were on tour in America, they took it. Up. No, they showed a picture. They went to see. Um, Bob, it was just after Bob Moog, Moog we should be saying, shouldn't we? we should died, say, yeah. and um, <laughs> I think his daughter's taken over, and they showed her at the Moog factory uh, the restoration because it was one of his old ones that possibly even you know the, our friends' electric days. Yeah, that he'd yeah, used yeah. And, That's incredible. How did yeah. how did that come about that you, Gary Newman approached you to? Well, it was to, funny really because I just got an email and it, I thought it was a a sort of joke or someone playing a prank because it just said something like hi Andy I've got some old synths that need fixing any chance you can have a look cheers Gary Newman mm-hmm. and it sounds like a joke doesn't it since Gary Newman yeah, yeah. yeah very yeah, casual yeah. And, uh, so I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was him or not because at the time this was probably uh, um, 12 years ago or something like that and I hadn't mm-hmm. he wasn't in the public eye so much then so I wasn't even sure whether he was doing music or not and I didn't say he didn't know he lived around here so right. I just said like I would to any other customer yeah fine drop him off um, sometime and then uh, he did he turned up here and uh, opened the door and I said oh it's going you was no way. exactly like I remember <laughs> <laughs> he said yeah of course you know. so I'm not sure it was you uh, he's a very natural nice guy as everyone says but uh, he, and then but he's not bothered about the old stuff really he, he not pressure to move on it. no yeah he's quite happy to sell it all and, uh, and buy new things and keep moving forward with sounds which is good as well yeah definitely don't stagnate and 
don't don't live in a world of nostalgia no. forever because time moves forward doesn't it and yeah yeah you can but say things like is that obx i think i used that on berserker album you know but see if you can get it going and <laughs> mm-hmm. casual which and he's given me quite a few bits over the years and until he moved obviously to la but um he's still using his band from around here so i'm still in touch with a, a lot of those um some of those anyway david brooks and aid a bit and nice. his, his keyboard player so they still give me some bits here and there that's good yeah aid's a really cool guy um yeah and it was great to interview him and, and speak to him uh I, I sort of knew him from we had a lot in common of in terms of like uh, where we would go clubbing mm. i'd be like one of the punters and he'd be one of the headlining djs <laughs> yeah. really cool to go and speak to him and just talk about those days yeah he's um, a cool bloke he's done some good stuff hasn't he yeah yeah, yeah definitely and um, what's that noise by the way oh that sounds like a crying baby yeah it's it does. next doors um, it's a little engraver oh okay okay <laughs> Should be, just, to, just so you can make it clear that it's not a That's child true. Yeah. <laughs> why doesn't someone help that poor baby to ignore it I'll go to sleep in a minute <laughs> but another thing that's talking of rare stuff on my um, Facebook website is a uh, um, a very early uh, EMS sequencer which I got going mm-hmm. um, and that was um, I think Analog Solutions they they sent that to me to be repaired and I think that they hardly any of those were made I think so that was something that was quite rare. Is that the, the, the sort of battleships looking one with the pins and the matrix is that the EMS? Um, Am I thinking of the? Well, EMS did do. They did. Uh, yeah, uh, they, like, um, they did do that uh, suitcase synth like that, didn't did they? see something? Yeah. This was sort of a big upright thing. You can see it on the uh, video on my uh, oh, Facebook when oh, okay. I finally got it going. It's really early yeah, digital, which is amazing. Nineteen seventy-four or something like that. Really, and it's digital. Like, yeah, the sort of thing wow. that the Who used in the beginning of. Bubba O'Reilly, I think. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong there, I'm sure someone will correct me. Yeah, you can yeah, <laughs> make sure you get it right. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I mean, going back to like fixing keys and stuff, I remember I uh, I had a, a Gen SX 1000, that was the first uh, analogue synth I bought, and oh, yeah. one of the keys was a bit knackered. And um, I opened it up to try and fix it, and it looked like basically every key had essentially a bit of guitar string that was connected to a metal oh, yeah. bar. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did a sort of hack hack fix on it, which Ooh. was just soldered an actual guitar string yes. to underneath <laughs> it, and it worked It worked really around, well. did it? Yeah. yeah they are quite similar, brilliant. aren't they, one of them, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the actual one that's in there is a way more flimsy than a guitar string. It's quite... Ooh. It doesn't have much resistance. So, uh, yeah, the guitar string worked really well in sort of botching together a fix of my own. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of them are gold-plated and people make the mistake of braiding it to clean it, but they mm-hmm. end up rubbing the gold plate off and, and losing the, the contact, really. So yeah, yeah, you yeah. should always just sort of use some, some contacts cleaner or uh, just carefully wipe it with a bit of leather or cloth mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, it's a good, a good synth to look at, the Gen SX 1000, to open up and look at it because it's so simple. Mm. Have have you ever fixed one or um, probably one? yeah I can't, uh, I think I know what you mean yeah it's like an Italian mono synth nineteen seventies all of the controls are on the top panel mm. single oscillator monophonic and um, yeah you open it up and you can just see oh that's the filter board 
Yeah. That's the envelope. That's the oscillator. Yeah, and that's nice, the power. And mm. they're all separate boards, so mm. it's like it's really easy to look at and mm. just sort of understand. Yeah, do you, do you know roughly like how many pieces of equipment you fixed in um, the years? Yeah, I did try and think about that um, in the last few years because I think now uh, I suppose there was a time when I was not all fixing music equipment all the time. So I decided if we take you know say twenty years, forget the first couple of years, and now I probably repair three to four hundred items a year no well <laughs> so if you add that over 20 years it's nearly ten thousand items yeah <laughs> it probably isn't as many as that that's but incredible. it's close i would think yeah so that's cool and do you have few, <laughs> yeah that's a lot i mean that's a lot of help for people that's a lot of music it's being kept, made yeah it's kept from, a lot of things going hopefully from yeah. that yeah. yeah and what were your what were sort of most gratifying things to fix what like really stands out to you um, yeah, there's two ways it's gratifying. Sometimes if it's something that I can repair quite quickly, something like a, a Fender Hot Rod Deluxe or something, I like fixing those, they're very easy to get the back off and pretty much anything that's wrong with it, I'm going to be able to find out what that is in, in a, an hour or so, within mm. an hour. And the spares are usually quite, uh, able, you know, I can get them quite easily. So. Something like that is quite gratifying because you can uh, open it up and do the job and close mm -hmm. it done, and that's quite nice. And the other thing that's gratifying, I suppose, like this Profit 10 that I've had here for a year or so, which was in the right state, um, and that has taken a lot of hours. The customer's been very understanding about it, but I've taken fault found and replaced over 40 failed chips in it, you know. I think. Mm -hmm. I think I read there's this uh, condition called metal migration, which can happen to old logic of the 70s and 80s, and mm -hmm. it, it uh, just fails on its own in the end. Right. And uh, so something like that, you really want to get it fully working and tuned and calibrated and like new, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a big job. It's, not, it's very different from someone's... You know, coming in saying, can you fix this? Fix my SK-1 for me. <laughs> yeah, like you take a car into the garage and say, you know, that it's got a flat tyre, and that's fine. But mm. if you take a car into the garage and say, well, it's, you know, the exhaust's blown, the, the camshaft's blown, the uh, pistons are missing, the, yeah. the wheel bearing's broken, the radio's not working, it's yeah, rusty. It turns on fire yeah, every time right. I start the It just becomes... Equivalent of a hundred different repairs in time-wise. Yeah, I think that's partially why they're becoming so expensive because they sound great and people want to hear them, but they're not that easy to uh, keep going. Yeah, I know someone who collects um, a lot of synths and keyboards, and he's starting to think like, if I keep all of these, they're going to break at some point, and it might be worth getting the money for them now rather than you know keep this yeah. whole big collection and um and uh, potentially Maybe. have them break when, down when do you jump off there they're always going up aren't they but exactly i bought yeah. i bought a juno yeah i've got a juno 6 which i bought off someone for 400 quid not long ago nice a couple of years ago but i found out he paid 40 quid for it 40 <laughs> 40 oh. pounds for the juno 6 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking like I don't really use it. I could sell it. I modified it. It has a a, ch a new chip in it, which is a ju makes it a Juno sixty six. Oh yeah, cool memories. Yeah, and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, it's like when do I do I hold on to because it? it's basically doubled in value since I bought it. It's mm. at least eight hundred, maybe a grand for a Juno six yeah. alone. Um, so, but yeah, like, yeah. I think they're mostly repairable. You know, there are terrible stories, like I said, in some cases. But usually, you can, re if it's more or less working, you can find out what's wrong with it and get it going in a couple of hours. It's not the end of the world uh, mm -hmm. financially, especially yeah. as it is worth money. But the the sixty is, is still very usable. I repaired one for Joe Mount from Metronomy. Um, really, I think. Oh. Um, Django Django, I repaired one for them as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, uh, yeah that, the sequential circuits, it's Profit 10. Is it Profit 10? Yeah, that yeah. is. Mm. It's, so, um, it's just so big. I never realised sequential circuits made anything that big with the no, two-tier keyboard. No, I don't think it got any, any bigger than that, but yeah, that was two Profit 5s in a box, really. Yeah, uh, if it got any bigger, you could actually get inside. You'd have to get inside to fix it. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. the next level up, isn't it? That is nice though, because it opens up, hinges up like a car bonnet, and mm -hmm. you've got access to everything. You can pull boards out, it's nicely designed. And uh, Wine Country um, in uh, California, they still support it as much as they can. Um, and they send you a lovely uh, manual and all uh, printed out with the open out fold out open circuits oh, and things nice. like that test so. test points and things like that uh, yeah. yeah it's well it's well written and it ha it's very helpful it's better than trying to look at some dodgy scam on the computer right? yeah um uh, yeah i mean the transcendent 2000 that mm. i have um i i had to fix it there was there was loads of things that weren't working on it but um yeah there weren't any pcb scans that were like, that, that were like totally legible so no. you couldn't tell if it was a 5 or a 6 oh, annoying, or an 8 or yeah. a 7 and so I, I did eventually put together all of the different versions I could find and, and I've remade the Transcendent 2000 main board as an image <laughs> I've shared it online mm. so you, you know exactly what well, that's good yeah. well. and I, I like color coded the capacitors and the resistors and all that oh, well sort done, of thing. Yeah. So yeah, it's nice. It's nice to when people do things like that. It's so yeah, they probably don't get much gratitude, but I'm sure there's people all over the world that are grateful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the internet's a bit like that sometimes. You can mm. give away things for free, and it will get hundreds of downloads and, and or whatever. And uh, one person says thanks, and one person says you're an idiot, and then yeah. you just feel <laughs> like, right. why do I do this thing? <laughs> yeah, you've done it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, with the trend, yeah, that was my giving a little bit back to the mm. to the community. But actually, what was really helpful in fixing that for me um, was uh, the sound on sound forums. Mm. So the people on there that talked me through oh, diagnostics yeah. of the power board, which mm. I had no idea about, and and literally talked me through every step of it, and I got it working <laughs> basically through Sound on Sound yeah. through the through the forms on there, mm. and I did pay I paid two or three of the guys a bit of money mm. for that That's for their help, yeah. um, and one of them was really cool. He just said, "Give it to charity. You give it to a charity of your of your choice." <laughs> So yeah, it's nice to have that. The synth community is a nice, nice community, isn't it? It's yes, good, good people. Yeah, there are lots of very knowledgeable people in it, and uh, yeah, you know, nice guys, as you say. Yeah. But people, I think when it's online, there's a YouTube video on how to fix things and stuff like that. They are 
it means people quite often have a go when they shouldn't and <laughs> if you're not really sure yeah. what they're doing <laughs> you can end up uh, well in some cases it can be really dangerous I saw some modification to a power supply that I'd seen and mm-hmm. they put it back together incorrectly so that the metal shielding that's supposed to go around it they put on the inside shorting right. the live and the neutral straight to the output <laughs> so you pick up a barrel connector and it's got mains on it Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and then you plug it into your unearthed keyboard and it floats and no one really knows until they uh, brush past it or something. It, yeah. yeah it was that i received it once and so had a go at fixing a, a switch mode AC adapter, which is, if you don't know what you're doing, you really shouldn't be doing it. Definitely, yeah, I mm. think that's definitely a good point. Yeah, don't, like, do stuff that's within your... Yeah, within know your where your capabilities Yeah, I certainly yeah. know where mine are. I'm not going to go into why. <laughs> but, yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in terms of, like, yeah, you said, like, it's nicely designed in there. Do you have... What synths do you sort of feel are really well well made and, and well put together? Um, usually expensive ones really it goes for a lot of it uh, you know same mixing desks and guitar amps and things like that they I think as you run long big productions on things to bring the price down it usually means that all the components end up on one board and it's uh, not very serviceable but you know like a a decent mixing desk will have each channel stripped on a removable board Mm -hmm. and you can just the idea is you replace them I suppose if you're in the middle of a project that you can fix it later and the same with the the decent synths I think you know early sequential circuit stuff and emu and a lot of those Silicon Valley um, um, companies of that time late 70s and 80s and they uh, edit things very nicely but then no, they still do now Wardorf and things like that they, they make sort of modular stuff that's still well supported I think yeah Vimona's always been a good brand for build yeah. quality whenever I've used one it's just yeah. feels incredible Yamaha are great they're very well supported with their spares and you can look up if you've got access you can look up and find out what spares they've got and you know, how much they are and how available they are and they can give you all the circuit diagrams all online and they were very helpful and uh, yeah just the big well-known companies really they've got the money to do it well haven't they hmm and have you ever been tempted to like use your knowledge to make a synth or make um pedals or something? a little bit yeah i would quite like to have a product because i think it's a good thing to do because once you've got it working and if people want it you can just sell it in the background and it, it keeps a, an income drifting in as well as being an interesting thing to do. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But it is very time-consuming to do something that, people, that hasn't really been done before that needs to be well-designed and thought about. You know, the big companies have teams of engineers working on things for a couple of years, you know, and in terms mm-hmm. of man-hours, that's a lot, isn't it? So I couldn't just take three years out of them working and come up with this great design and mm-hmm. I don't really have time to do it in the background yeah um, so I sort of don't really do design I did make a um, uh, having said that I did make a, an active DI box once oh that's cool which, uh, which was okay um, and uh, you know, I sort of wrote got all the parts like a kit to build that with all the instructions and things like that so I could do it quickly but uh, Mm-hmm. Again, for the amount you can sell it for, it wasn't worth building really. 
Yeah, I think, I don't know, I think that your skills would be so... I mean, I'm guessing you can look at a circuit board and say, like, oh, that's a ladder filter straight away. You can, can you see yeah, these usually, familiar components? And yeah, can decide what's doing what. Not always, because sometimes it's not very clear, and um, it can just be a, a sea of chips, and you don't really know what's going on, and that's when you need... You don't always have to know exactly what's going on to fix it. If uh, you just start with a few basic things like are the DC supplies from the power supply present? Are they smooth? Um, is it taking too much current? Are there any shorts? Mm -hmm. um, and especially if it's a mechanical thing like a key not working or a broken pot or stuff like that, you don't really even need to know um, what's going on or even what it is to some extent you know? yeah 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 because <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, you can if the idea is to get it fixed as quickly as possible and uh, you don't need to do five hours back up reading on the service manual to really know all about it and then open up and say oh yeah it's a fuse Just you know? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. yeah 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 yeah, so, yeah. So, you're, you're right about cheap components though I seem to remember like uh, the Novation base station you just mm. see them everywhere, left, right, and centre, with like broken pots and yeah, and and things because it just build quality. I think yeah, it seems to be really bad. It's always a trade-off. I think what the engineer wants to produce and what the marketing want it to look like, um, what mm. the, uh, the treasury department want it, or the uh, you know the finance department want it to uh, cost. They mm -hmm. all come together to end up with whatever product you get. You know, no one can do it ideally. Definitely, which isn't a bad mouth Novation, by the way. I do use one of their, I use a Novation A station in my band mm. at the moment. And uh, yeah, build quality for them has been really good in recent years. Yeah. Particularly talking about the Mark One base station. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else. No, well, they've done some good stuff, haven't they? But also, people have to make things uh, light now because they send it all over with couriers, don't they? And you couldn't uh, imagine couriering a CS80 or Profit 10 is, yeah, is no 10. joke, is yeah. it? Or well, even the Akai samplers, the uh, like yeah. S3000 series, shipping them That's from true. an eBay sale. Yeah. Um, I saw someone selling one the other day for £1.20 postage, and it was actually in Brighton, and hmm. I went to go and look at it, and I said, do you realise that you've char you're going to charge £1.25 postage for this? And they, they totally messed up. They didn't realise uh, that they'd, they'd said it and that, so they like took the took the auction off. But uh, I was like, £1.20? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joking, that's like, times that by 100. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it arrives broken if you're not... <laughs> If you haven't got the right packaging. Yeah, yeah. Do you do that? Do you do you offer like um, John things? Not really. Sometimes people send things. Well, quite often people send things to me. I send them back, but I'm always a bit worried about it because uh, you don't know what sort of journey it's going to get. And it's good if people have got the original packaging, which they usually haven't. But, mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've had uh, you know send out a powered speaker or something like that. And, it's arrived with the magnet off the back of the speaker, so it's right. like fallen out of an aeroplane or something. You know? <laughs> Even though it was very rugged and, and yeah, wrapped up and boxed, it's of a massive impact at some point, and you don't get any insurance generally because they just say you didn't pack it well enough, which I suppose is always an answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, it's a much safer way to have that. You know, come here in person and. Yeah, I prefer that. Hand it over. Or you can get a sort of man with a van type courier that's a little bit more money, but someone personally comes and picks it up and puts it, you know, wraps it in blankets, puts it in the back of their van and drives it straight to the destination. I mm -hmm. think that's 
a good way to do it if it's an expensive uh, item or if it's a big item. But small stuff is fine, isn't it? You can send that about. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I posted a DX100 recently that was in its original box, and I put it that box in a box, so it was like there was no way that... Oh, yeah, it was, I've yeah, got that. one of those. It was one of my first... Well, not one of the first, but, yeah, nearly one of the first little synths I've bought one of those. And yeah, they're great. I love the mod wheel in the picture. They're sort of on 86. the top corner. Yeah. So it's a nice expression compared to normally being down here. You've got, like, a bit of a rollover sort of with it. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But um, back to the courier thing for a second, I... Um, repaired um, an odyssey for a guy from the Claxons and mm-hmm. and he uh, sent a taxi from London to come and get it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, they've done a lot with the Chemical Brothers, haven't they? The Claxons. They did they do on... a few songs, didn't they? Um, yeah. Yeah, they were at the studio. At the Chemical Brothers studio, they recorded it there, yeah. What was it? It was the opening track, uh, All Rights Reversed. It was the opening track right. to uh, uh, We Are The Night, that was it. It was the mm. opening track to We Are The Night. And I think they appeared on a couple of others. Just, um, yeah, and you got a, you were accredited on one of the Chemical Brothers albums. Yeah, it was nice of them, yeah. I think I've been repairing stuff for Tom Rowlands for 10 or 11 years now, and he, um, quite regularly go to their studio to keep things going and all they... Um, you know, bring stuff up occasionally, and um, uh, yeah, that was an unexpected way of them saying thank you. Really, it was it just said uh, thanks to Andy Collins for keeping the studio running right good. Yeah, <laughs> so it was, uh, and gave me a signed copy of that, which was really nice. And, That's uh, incredible. Yeah, we're pleased with that. It's nice to get some uh, gratitude sometimes, isn't it? Other than just the money, you know. Exactly. That's what you do it for, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Also, I like to. If if you are repairing something for um, a customer that's making music that's in that gets heard, and then uh, it's nice to listen to the music and think, oh, that is the that's the instrument I repaired. You can identify the sounds quite, or I can identify the sounds quite often and know uh, that the instrument I repaired for them is being used. Or I remember going to Glastonbury one year and walking around and I saw eleven items that I'd repaired for certain bands really? no being way. used. Yeah, I was That's counting it up. I mean, they have like thousands of uh, performances, don't they? But uh, I counted 11 <laughs> things that I've fixed. <laughs> Keep your fingers crossed that it lasts the, the gig. Wow, and it's being used at Glastonbury, like the... The sort of pinnacle yeah. music festival in the UK. That's, that's yeah, and you think, cool. is, that, uh, is that in tune? <laughs> Did I, <laughs> yeah. I tune that nicely? The, yeah, <laughs> what's happened with the pulse width on that? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's tuning right, I remember yeah. that transformer was very hot in the power supply. I hope it holds out. <laughs> yeah, that's really, really, really cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that side of it for you, the fact that you can hear the, the thing that you did in that album yeah, you know, in, a, in a roundabout. Sometimes it's buried, but other times it is, it's quite obvious that it's that instrument, and you can recognise certain presets of certain instruments as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, we well, just to keep on the camera for a second. I remember I came round here and you had the the Juno. Was it the Juno sixty that had Hey Boy Hey Girl preset on oh, one hundred six Juno one hundred six? Yeah, that was amazing because that's one that they use as a on their tour 
uh, you know, when they tour, they they use it as a sort of master keyboard, I believe. I don't know exactly how they set it up, but mm-hmm. um, they got some sounds in that, and it's also triggering other stuff. And it, and the uh, the filter fader was just worn out completely. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the first. <laughs> nearly thing all to the faders, but I'm sure the filter gets a hammering, and it was yeah. sort of rubbed off all the uh, the carbon track off it, and uh, a lot of the note the uh, key contacts were playing up the, the uh, mod wheel the pitch bender were, were broken the jack sockets the solders were dodgy they must have mm-hmm. used it so much just it. really worn it out yeah, yeah the paint was worn off and, but um, yeah we managed to get nearly everything changed on it and uh, uh, recalibrated brilliant yeah, I mean, then that's so much. That's like that's British musical history. In <laughs> yeah, one piece of equipment, isn't it? Hey boy, hey girl. Yeah, that. the presets with the labels on it. That's great, isn't it? With the different songs. That, yeah. Uh, Seminal music. That was the surrender was such a huge album. Yeah. Everyone knows that track, Hey boy, hey girl, don't they? Yeah, it's fabulous, wasn't it? Yeah. Really. Well, they really still do cool. really great stuff. I think they're sort of changing, but they're unusual. I mean. Tom Rowan's a very knowledgeable guy, and um, on uh, he's got a, you know a lot of access to a lot of equipment, and um, he he really knows how to use it, and uh, he can he can put it together very interestingly. They even you know quite often make their own drum sounds from scratch, and they do everything with uh, with synths really, it's not not software based as far as I know, and although some of it is, but. Uh, They've got so much stuff that they, they do everything from scratch. And, and that when you think of it like that and you listen to it from that point of view, you've you really, really got to take your hat off to them how they manage to create these exciting sounds all the time and these, these good little riffs and bass lines and yeah. mini moogs and things like that and a lot of modular stuff. Exactly. It's like mastery. It's sort of like it's really been crafted. Every yes. element is... Yeah, it's very different to grabbing a few samples and dragging them onto a door isn't it and then the playing around with it and yeah it's almost, almost it's, the same but that little bit of difference is another 20 years and <laughs> loads more equipment here yeah with like dedication and um yeah and like trial and error as well you know like musical trial and error yeah uh, making weirdest sounds you can possibly mm. get to to get to a point of like wow that's really cool what have we done yeah, there just something that has some character that grabs you is yeah, difficult, yeah. isn't it? You don't necessarily know it until you hear it, do you? But mm. Yeah, they've definitely trod that line between like super weird and wonky, while still being able to be very mm. um, popular and uh, yeah. great on the dance floor, which is sort of yeah. what they're about, isn't it? Yeah, I'll go to their um, gigs as as much as I can. Usually, at least once a year, and they're doing something in London or whatever, and uh, it's always really exhilarating, massive video display as well above above them they've got some really good videos and graphics and lighting and some good people that work with them mm-hmm. i was thinking with the career path you're asking me something a bit of a name dropping that I forgot to get in which was um, the band that we went um, on to form 
obviously they weren't they weren't really big but they were quite popular locally and they uh called the gift and they were um managed at one point by a guy called Andy Stevens who unfortunately died quite young but he had a business called MG Cargo I think and he used to um, transport uh, equipment around for big name bands including Sting and the Spice Girls and Wet 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 at the time and and, uh, I sort of tagged along with that for a little while as well and that was sort of responsible for getting equipment um, again sort of in the music business as well as why I mentioned it you know it was getting everything stacked up and into the aeroplane ticked off of what exactly you've got and then at the other end as the road is unpack it all tick it off mm-hmm. make sure it gets onto the stage and then when it gets packed up again um, ticking off everything on the list in the you know three that it was sting tour I went on three no, lorries no, okay. with that making sure all the uh, everything ends up back on the plane for the next gigs uh, so that that was something that was quite interesting to uh, um, sort of went to Sting's house a few times we went to his studio with that and uh, oh, played cool. some of his guitars and things like that with, with via him uh, so that was another good sort of step into the right people really so I repaired some of the band stuff at that time, some of Sting stuff and some Wet 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 stuff. And, uh, oh, nice. Yeah, so that's another sort of lucky thing that got got me involved with it, really. Yeah, that's great. I wanted to ask you about sort of whether you've been on tour with, with any bands or anything. That's, um... Yeah, not other than that, no. And I wasn't employed as, as a repairer, but um, I did repair something when, when we were back here, but uh, at that time I was just sort of... Uh, uh, as I say, making sure things got in the right place at the right time. That's cool. Were you secretly hoping like the guitarist got a bit ill at some point <laughs> in the tour, and they were like, "And you can play guitar." <laughs> I'm not sure I would like to have been thrown in that situation. <laughs> Fifty thousand people yeah. are waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. Didn't you feed in that sandwich earlier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that was catering. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Um, nice. Do you have any? Have you ever had any like high pressure um, jobs where something's the turnaround's got to happen in like a um, matter of hours? Yeah, I don't like those, but <laughs> it does happen. And usually with with bands, I fixed some um, AC Vox AC thirty amps for the Foles once, and they were mm-hmm. um, they said something like, "Can you pack them up and send them to France?" by Friday or whatever, you know, so it was a bit, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't really my my uh, expertise in getting stuff sent to France and packed up and stuff like that, and then, right. uh, so that was a, a hell of a sort of rush around, it's just like a couple of days to sort of revalve them and repair them and, and get them out. Yeah, and the logistics of getting them there is another Yeah, I don't know why they trusted me with that, but <laughs> I think... Did you get a taxi from London to take should it? Have done, should have done. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, metronomy a little bit. Can you quickly come and fix this uh, um, uh, synth for, you know, we need it for the album. It's when people are recording stuff and they and they realise it's not working and they've got guests in the studio and I think that then sometimes you get called out and not necessarily for um, you know well-known people but 
anybody really that's needs it done at that moment and mm-hmm. try try my best to help them yeah i guess it can be panic they can panic if they've got the studio booked and they've had this time planned yes. months in advance well i had a, a call from um tim rice oxy from keen to say can i come mm-hmm. and uh calibrate an arp 2600 that their producer has brought in and it's that tune and they're recording there and then mm-hmm. and uh I would have loved to have helped out, but I was on holiday, so I was just like walking down the beach and saying, uh, sorry. Can you do the diagnostic over the phone? Then? <laughs> Can I do it next Monday? Not really. I expect you're probably at a level where you could help people fix it just by on the telephone from the yeah. beach of <laughs> yeah. wherever you are, the Caribbean. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, just stay on holiday. And... <laughs> become a consultant yeah there's quite an interesting thing with like the price of synths changing and like things mm. being in fashion and going out of fashion Ooh. so like 828 and 909s and SH101s and TV303s are like the classic staple yes investment synths aren't they but there's some where for example like Aphex Twin made that album with a cheetah a cheetah yeah. synth yeah and suddenly that became hugely popular yeah it's things like that that trigger things being popular isn't it like just an article or someone's used it or something turns up on the internet and praising it and then suddenly everybody gets them repaired or yeah i have groups of the same item come in at the same time for whatever reason Mm -hmm. that might be something like that yeah what sort of stuff what sort of stuff Um, comes to mind well just anything quite often like i've got three Emu PK sixes here, yeah, God, I which you, okay. <laughs> yeah, you, you brought in two of them, but then they were from separate people, and I had another one come in as well, and I don't think I'd seen one before that, and now I've got three. I've got two Alf- Roland Alfred Junos just arrive. Um, for some reason, things often come in pairs. Um, I've got two PPG waves there. Have you? Oh wow, I didn't even notice them. And, wow. and the top, yeah. Nice. But um, yeah, I think it must. It could be coincidence, but it, it also could be that uh, people respond to people using them. Yeah, yeah. And the cheetahs were quite good, weren't they? It was great. I because I have one under my bed, which is um, an Evolution EVS one mm-hmm. rack mount. It's a pre FM synth, right. and I'm sure I think that's going to be one of those ones, those types, because. It's quite rare now. You don't. I've, I haven't seen one on eBay for maybe years, mm. but it's a great sound. It's really fat. It's a big digital mm. sound. I think that's that's the point, isn't it? If it makes a sound that other instruments don't make, and then it'll always be popular. I think or I say always, and still it gets maybe soft synths will take over eventually. But people still like to twiddle knobs and end up somewhere where they don't know where they're going to get. And exactly. If you're faced with a load of presets and a, and a mouse, not really the same feeling, is it? But no, it's totally different. Maybe you know, totally. outboard gear, you know, plug out stuff is is getting more and more popular. I'm sure they find a way around it. And mm-hmm. Maybe people, as the generation that doesn't remember analog since disappears, maybe there won't be an interest in them. I don't know. It'll be like antiques dealing in a weird way, won't it? I yeah. Don't know how it, I don't know how it Yeah, works. I suppose so. People still want to buy an Aston Martin DB5, don't they? Because James Bond had one, and I'm sure the new Aston Martin's better in every way, but yeah. it's not the same. It doesn't smell the same, and it doesn't. It's something about the experience, isn't it? Yeah, and like the sound of the engine and the, yeah. the, the handling and, and all that it's stuff. A, yeah, idiosyncrasies that the 
that are with it, you know. Yeah. And what for you are like your favourite synths? What do you love the sound of? Or um, yeah, favourite to work on, a favourite to listen to. Um, yeah, I think to listen to. Yeah, like your. I guess working on it might be fun as well. Yeah, they're not always the life. same thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice to work on it, but sometimes some of the ones that sound nice are a pain to work on. You know, but mm-hmm. I like um, things like the SH one hundred and one because it is so it's quite basic and yet it makes some really good sounds quite quickly and you can spend ages playing with it and, mm. and all the Juno range as well the, the 106 as you say is, is great it's dark yeah it's really dark that's yeah it. and um, but then there are some you know the more expensive stuff like the CS the Yamaha CS range that that, that 80 the, that um, I spoke about earlier that they're very musical it's amazing that I don't think people would ever be able to make something like that anymore it's just got this massive loom in it like a car and uh, mm-hmm. these long wooden keys like 12 inches long really is <laughs> yeah <laughs> a massive component count yeah I mean they've remade the CS80 haven't they Deckard's Dream is a rack mount CS80 oh, yeah. you can buy as a kit mm. it's like four grand mm. for <laughs> the, just the kit components yeah. and like the pile of resistors that you need is yeah I'm sure they, oh, I don't know, they must have cut a few corners again because a lot of the original voice chips were Yamaha bespoke ones which are not available anymore really I've been, mm-hmm. I've been looking for one for a couple of years now there was a time when they'd turn up and if you needed it you could get it but um, they're just not coming up anymore right, yeah. someone needs to do a clone of that yeah yeah, they must have done something. IG one five three or something. It's called, I think, that chip. But I don't think anyone has at the moment. But I don't know what they've done with that one. Yeah, well, they're definitely on their second iteration of it. So there were maybe some things that customers weren't happy with. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I don't. Not technically minded enough to. Yeah, I wonder know what they've done for the oscillator sound. Yeah, I'm sure they've gone as close as they possibly can mm. do you keep up to date with like modern synth um, things not, I don't make an effort to no I just see them come through the door I suppose and I do some sort of repair work for some modern stuff it's not all vintage stuff I do a lot of uh, uh, warranty stuff for uh, Casio and uh, Blackstar guitar amps and um, uh, you know some Yamaha stuff, Roland stuff, Waldorf stuff. So I do see it, but um, mm-hmm. I only know as much as I need to know to get it working. Really. Yeah. Yeah. The range of things you fix. Hmm. It. Uh, so you've mentioned PA's, synths. Yeah, I'd say any pedals. electronic music equipment really. So that pretty much covers everything. It is a mm. wide range of technologies as well because you can be working on a, a, a valve amp from the 50s or 60s and then working on a, a digital synth you know so that there's a hell of a lot of different uh, yeah yeah <laughs> knowledge base that you need to be able to repair both of those items but mm. it's sort of I've gone along with it because I've been doing it so long now but I like to also high-end hi-fi I do that as well it's worth doing and I'm very interested in good hi-fi especially now that you can get really good 
quality downloads from Tidal and mm-hmm. there's not many actually you know Spotify is not hi-fi really but Tidal do master quality do they? which is really nice yeah oh, nice. if you if you pay for it you can get sort of equivalent of 24 bit 96 kilohertz sample rate studio quality and if you've got you know hi-fi is really interesting because you can find a really good nicely designed amplifier some really good speakers a nice DAC now and uh, you, the results are amazing you like re-listening to your collection really, and suddenly yeah. hearing instruments that didn't I've always tried to keep my hi-fi at home as, as good as possible upgrading it every time I spot something else and, nice and when people come round and you play them a song they're familiar with they say I didn't even know it sounded like that you know yeah so, I think it's something that's got lost over the years because people are just listening with their phones and computers and MP3s and yeah. But I'm I'm hoping it will come back. I think as as qualities get better and broadband speeds get better and the price of things goes down. Yeah, that sort of thing. Well, I remember I lived in Russia for a little while and I remember when people would give me like MP3s of Russian songs. Mm. It would be a really low quality like. Right. <laughs> Like MP3, and I remember thinking, how can people listen to that and not think that that's a really low quality yeah. uh, MP3? But people were sharing it as if it was a normal track, and I guess you can hear the track in there. Yeah, but that's not experiencing it like no. you're talking about, is it? Part of the pleasure of hearing music is the quality of it for me, and it is for the people that record it as well, isn't it? And the job of the producer, and they spend ages finding the best mic preamps and the best mics and the best instruments, and mm. and and that's a lot of it, you know, the quiet bits are quiet, the distortion's very as low as possible, and you recreate what it would sound like if they were sitting in front of you, is the idea yeah. of a good hi-fi design. It's quite funny, I've never really thought about it, but um, like the signal, like you said, like the producers and everyone who knows their stuff, the musicians, mm-hmm. every single component in that, in the order of the signal path, is like the best that they can possibly get, like mm. the mics, the preamps, it should be, yeah. the amplifiers, the guitars, whatever it is, the synths and stuff. And then it gets to the end consumer who plays yeah. it on a mobile phone. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and fucking don't forget all that. Yeah. Total waste of time. You might as well have done it on Garage Band. Yeah. On, yeah, it's funny, it's strange that, isn't it? I've never thought about that. It gets to the last part of the chain, the person who's actually yeah. listening to it. And then you wonder it. what they're actually listening to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Obviously, melody is one thing. But a lot of songs don't really have melody nowadays, do they? I mean, there's some great like hip hop production again, which you're not really hearing, and then mm. a rapper or something who don't, who's sort of more lyric based than, than melody based usually. So, yeah, what they're actually hearing, I'm not really sure. <laughs> what they're enjoying, the hi hats, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> the, the ratcheted hi hats. Yeah, that's, the, like, that's yeah. what you hear. I mean, I'm getting to the age now where I hear like trap music with the hi hats going. Oh yeah, and I just think all of that music sounds the same, you know, because of that hi hat pattern. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've got a housemate that listens to music like twenty four seven on her phone and laptop, mm. and all you can ever hear is like. And, yeah. and my feeling is, you've got to hear the bass. You've got to feel the bass. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like that's part of the experience of the music is mm. to feel it a little bit. Yeah, it's like 
getting a graphic equaliser and pushing up 1k and turning everything else down yeah exactly yeah <laughs> sounds great to me <laughs> <laughs> like the beauty of seeing like i mean i remember seeing left field you know the group yeah. left field i remember seeing mm. them live and your guts your organs in the body are like yeah. shaking and like mm. you're looking at each other like your whole chest is feeling this music didn't they do that um song with sleep a few song with sleep with mods guys i thought that was really good it was yeah, one of my favorite yeah. tracks of a couple of years ago wasn't it and, yeah that album um, yeah what yeah. was it it was without paul daly though so it was it was like half of left right. field really mm. um yeah it's a good album that yeah and i think they're still playing and touring yeah yeah, yeah it's really, interesting stuff really great band and what else uh uh, what do you like to do away from this sort of stuff? What do you what? Where do you find serenity and uh, um, what sort of things do you get up to aside well, from the synths? I recently had uh, twins, uh, so I've got two baby girls now, which um, right, I right. left it quite late, so uh, <laughs> it's taken some get, uh, getting used to, but that's uh, enjoyable. So um, mm-hmm. I spend. If I, I've also got I own a, a bar in Eastbourne, and. Which um, I can't spend so much sort of time looking after that as I used to, but I still keep an eye on that. And um, so with that, and this place, and the twins, that sort of pretty much takes up all my time really. But I'd like I like to get out now that I've got a family and, and the summer's coming. It's really great, and they've just learned to walk, so uh, you know we can go for walks and <laughs> enjoy things that uh, nature has to offer and yeah. babies and that's a new what would have been uh, you know going out and partying and <laughs> playing music has been replaced by that but uh, yeah it's fine because I've, I've done all the other stuff exactly well not all of it but a lot of it <laughs> <laughs> some of it probably that's cool man and was it did you have twins in your family is that how that no they're non-identical so apparently that's non-hereditary Oh, is it? So it's just chance, really, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So it's only the identical ones that are hereditary, I think. Is it? I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, there we go. But that's quite good, because we've got instant family now. But <laughs> instant <it is>. family, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> family deluxe version. Yeah. <laughs> it is quite hard work, because there's always a... You know, you go out and they run off in different directions. And <laughs> yeah. There's always one wants something or one's awake or whatever. But mm-hmm. It's great fun anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so you have a website where people can contact you if they need stuff fixing. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't uh, update it that much. I have a few things uh, for sale that um, I don't really buy and sell stuff, but if things come my way one way or another, and um, usually through insurance repairs or write-offs or something like that, or, and uh, I have some stuff for sale on there, I um, prefer people to sort of... Uh, text or email really because I think sometimes mm-hmm. a phone call can really take you out of a zone if you're working through something and uh, yeah. you're following a circuit and you're trying to trace something that, that's not working and you, you're 10 components down the line and you're nearly there and someone rings you up and, and says uh, you know can you come and whatever you know? yeah 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 um, throws you off 
yeah, and then yeah, you have to get good. right back in the zone again. So, um, but then again, you need to be able to answer the phone. I think in a business. So, I know some people who are in similar jobs. They put up things like "Don't phone me" or "Leave a message" or "Only phone me on Monday between one and one thirty or something." You know? mm-hmm. But uh, I'm reluctant to do that because I still like to just sort of uh, pick up the phone if I can. But yeah, I and you never know when somebody might really need your help. Well, exactly. And they're yes. going to appreciate that that's can you come a Sunday and kind of evening. break the knot for me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I don't spend too much time updating the website. I've got a Facebook page which uh, has a couple of hundred followers that are always usually interested in things that I post that are interesting. You know. Like, uh, servicing various things photos and stuff like that yeah people love to see that especially yeah. seeing the insides of synths because a lot of people i think are just scared to even open it up and look at it yeah i mean I i'm probably too eager <laughs> uh, <laughs> looking at stuff and, and tinkering with it but um yeah i think it's nice to look inside they are quite beautiful things yes aren't they? So, a lot um, of people are interested in it and i think uh, i'd take a photo of nearly everything i repair usually because so that i can uh, Make sure it looks like it did. <laughs> or it's, everything's gone back in the right place. All the you know. <laughs> There's a blue knob and a yellow knob. Which way around do they go? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's very helpful now having a phone that can easily take pictures. So you can quickly uh, decide. You know, look at when you pull things apart. You want to make sure they go back together in the same way. So that's one way of doing it. You can see where wires go and uh, which screws go where and stuff like that. And, I've got a massive collection of photos, but I don't get a chance to put them up. I haven't really updated any of my uh, websites or the Facebook page for quite a few months, but uh, in theory I'd like to put a lot of stuff up there because I think it's good for it to be out there, really, photographs of all this gear yeah, inside and out. Yeah. But I guess from your point of view, if it you wanna, if you don't need to like generate more custom... With that, those sorts of things are probably going to do that yes. eventually. So I you usually don't need decline to any offers from Google AdWords or Yell or something like that to uh, put me more out there because uh, mm-hmm. there's only so much I can do really. Yeah, I think that's a good a good position to be in. Really. Yeah, not like you know some people shouting on the internet. Oh, I'm doing the best thing. Yeah, everyone take notice of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not really into that side of it too much. Despite yeah. my name dropping today, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been quite minimal, really. Yeah, yeah. But some people are quite—they uh, underestimate, I think, the business uh, and of what's involved. You know, they come up and say things like, "I, um, I'm sure it's nothing simple, uh, but I don't know anything about it. But I don't want to spend any money on it. But if you can, uh, you know, just get it going for me, I'd need it by Friday. Things like that, you know, <laughs> and." And you say, well, you know, it could be, uh, it's 40 years old, there could be loads of things wrong with it. And exactly, It's yeah. going to have to join a list of 30 items, and sometimes I try and, and get it through quickly if I can, obviously, but um, people say things like, oh, should, can't you pass your meter over it and tell me what's wrong with it, like the, you know, the... Uh, the yeah, your magic, yeah, like the magic sponge Multimeter is going to tell me what's wrong with it. <laughs> yeah. It says oscillator one has <laughs> yeah not quite at that stage yet. That's what you should design maybe is like the ele- electrical diagnostic tool which tells you what's wrong with the synth. Yes, that'd be nice. <laughs> Put myself out of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had a guy that um, I spent quite a few hours working out what was wrong with his uh, 
um, old American 80s sampling drum machine and uh, I was quite pleased in the end that I found out what it was and, and then I phoned him up and uh, he said, I'm not spending that much on it, I didn't want you to spend that much time on it, I'm not going to pay you a penny, I'm coming to pick it up now, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're just totally flippant and, and not really a bit delusional about you know the amount of effort that's gone in yeah, for yeah, really yeah. a price that's less than a fence or something like you know mm-hmm. certainly if you take your car to the garage you nearly always come out with a four or five hundred bill don't you and, yeah exactly you know, you've I really, no idea what it what yeah, went wrong I, I before or after <laughs> no I don't very often ever reach that sort of well I'd say sometimes but not that often reach that sort of value and yet people don't want to pay it because they see it as something that is almost throw away and easy to repair if you can repair things then you can repair it and uh, I'm not paying that sort of money so yeah, I get yeah. quite a lot of that I get told when it's got to be done and how much it's going to cost and, and uh, you sort of resent that a little bit yeah it's difficult to to predict that isn't it and maybe an analogy is useful for those people uh, yes. to just put, put what they're thinking into some context yeah you know, like um don't know it's like taking an animal to a vet isn't it it's like the animal's Mm-mm. not right fix the animal yes or tell me what's wrong with this animal and it's like well i, yeah. I don't know just by looking at it no I have to, yeah yeah well, they respect a vet or a doctor wouldn't they and the vet will come back and say it needs an operation it's going to be two thousand pounds and they say oh, okay but i think certain things have a value like a car or a house or an animal that people are prepared to spend the money on but if yeah. it's they just say, well, I'll go on eBay and I can buy one for that. Or it's sort of, That's sort of one problem with the business, which is partially why you end up fixing things that are worth a lot, that have now become worth a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a shame because there are, you know, most things can be repaired. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, so like the older stuff, like it's quite big, they're quite big components. Like I've had an old mixing desk mm. that I can, it's so easy to fix, whereas things like the boutique, the new boutique stuff, mm. I think fixing those things is pretty much nigh on impossible with the size yeah. of the components in them. So sometimes going back with the vintage stuff, it's easier to fix. Yeah, them. it's nice in that respect, isn't it? Because you can identify a component and pull it out and hopefully find another one and put it in. Yeah. That's why... Yeah, the older stuff is good to repair, especially like a lot of the 60s organs and Vox Continentals and Farfisas and things like that. Mm -hmm. They sound great and they've still got a very useful sound that people can use. Yeah, a classic sound. Yeah, Yeah, like a classic sound. As soon as you get some high profile person that's used them, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and things like that, Mm. people want to use them to be inspired in the same way, don't they? Yeah. they're often very big, that's the trouble with all these things. <laughs> yeah, they are huge. Actually, I was going to say about when you talk about photographing synths, I had a Viscount synth that I bought off someone for 99p on eBay in hmm. my hometown. And um, I was like, I, you know, I agreed to take this from your house, but I need to dismantle it here and then put it all back together at home. <laughs> so I, I did. I, I took about 50 photos of it. Mm. unscrewed it all in this guy's living room he was just amazed took my soldering iron he was like I can't believe you're going to take it all because it wouldn't fit through the door it was just too big to fit through their door 
And um, yeah, I did. I rebuilt it back at my house. And it worked <laughs> fine. That's he just good. hated it because I painted it, and but I painted it with red paint, and it, the red paint had dribbled down it, so oh. it looked quite gothic mm. and dark. Mm. And I thought it was just funny, but he was um, yeah, he didn't like what I'd done with the actual body. Did he see it then? Yeah, I sent him a photo, oh. and he was like, "I don't really like the the paint job you no. did." <laughs> my pressure's I was like, fair enough, it's mine anyway. Um, Great. Well, it's. I think it's a really amazing job you do, and you're really valuable to the musicians mm. and to the industry. That's kind of you to say that. Yeah, and um, yeah, without people like you, stuff would just go get lost and yeah, not get used. Yeah, I suppose there's nearly ten thousand things that hopefully still kicking around that people can use. But definitely, and the thirteen yeah. things in Glastonbury as well. <laughs> the nine things I can't remember. <laughs> eleven, I think I said. Yeah, yeah eleven. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible thing you do, and um, hopefully there's going to be you know people like you who continue to fix things. Yes, I think it, it's dying out, isn't it? Because as I say, the qualifications I did are no longer available, um, and I su- but then again, there's more information on the internet, and people can uh, build it up. But whether they'd want to make a living out of it once, you know, like I said before, there's probably something else they can do to, mm-hmm. to get more money, but. Yeah, and don't follow YouTube videos which tell you... Well, some of them are very good and some <laughs> of them are really dodgy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool, well, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you and very you, much. Yeah, thanks for coming. Enjoyed it. I have so much respect for Andy and what he does. Uh, he's incredibly skillful. For As someone who has destroyed music equipment myself over the years trying to modify and fix it people like him doing it professionally are to be treasured and respected uh, yeah we wouldn't have the music from the chemical brothers from gary newman from everybody he mentioned on that list without people like him certainly um the world would be a worse place if we just kept throwing up things away that could still be used It was a great chat on a very hot summer's day, much like today. And next month we've got the live artist that I mentioned on the previous episode. Because I don't know if you've noticed, I always get it wrong who's on the next episode because things change and life changes, doesn't it? But thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate the support. I'm Midiera and this was Midiera Meets. See you again soon.